Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Emily Burt, Editor. And I'm Lucinda Rouse, Senior Reporter at Third Sector. Each week, we bring you half an hour of discussion and debate about some of the important goings-on in the charity world. Now, this week's episode is going to be a little bit different. And I use that word intentionally, as we're going to give you a sneak preview of a new product coming soon to Third Sector in the form of the diff. Yes, The Diff is a brand new podcast that we are currently testing in its pilot stage. In a twist away from our usual third sector content, we're going to be taking deep dives into different cause areas and championing the work of the small charities, the grassroots organisations and the social enterprises that are working on the front line. And most importantly, it's about you. Having conversations with people working in the sector who really make the difference and providing a platform for your stories. As is always the case in the development of a new product, there has been quite a bit of experimenting going on. And we've had some fantastic people in for interviews, people with really interesting perspectives on the sector and some of the common social problems that charities are working to overcome. Yes. So in this episode, we're going to share some snippets from those initial chats ahead of the pilot launch and also introduce you to the host of The Diff, the broadcast journalist and presenter, Rihanna Dillon. Hello and welcome to The Diff, a new podcast from the makers of Third Sector, the leading title for the charity world. We're so glad you found us. I'm your host, Rihanna Dillon, and as the classic Third Sector strapline goes, we're all about championing those who make a difference, and we do it by telling your stories. I'll be sitting down with people who work for charities and not-for-profits to share anecdotes, frank discussion and ideas for building a better world. With conversations that challenge and inspire in equal measure, we'll explore how we can all make the difference. Kicking things off are two people who are all about helping people thrive in a society that often fails to support them. I'm joined by Meg Doherty, the founding director of Fat Macy's, a charity that exists to get Londoners out of hostels and into their own homes. So can you just tell us a little bit about the programme at Fat Macy's? So at Fat Macy's what we do is we work with young people living in temporary accommodation and we train them up in catering and hospitality. So we have a restaurant and a catering company on Shoreditch High Street. And for us it's all about sort of helping people through an employment pathway into whatever job that they want to do. So the job part is really, really important, but because people live in temporary accommodation, when we work with them, we actually provide a programme of work experience where we don't employ them while they're doing the programme. And that's because when you're living in temporary accommodation, it's really hard to to work because the costs are so high in temporary accommodation. And so actually it works out for most people, it's better to stay on full benefits because that's how they can actually afford the rent Mm because they're sort of over a £1,000 per month um, per room. So for our trainees, it's about work experience, motivation, support, Um, while they're doing the programme and then at the end of the programme they can get a housing deposit Um, and that's how they can save enough money to to get that deposit to move into their own home and then we support them for up to two years afterwards. We say up to two years, we still talk to people three, four, five years afterwards. I used to work in a homeless shelter and that was my catalyst really. I realised what I was good at doing was not cooking or anything like that but just like making things happen. I'd met a group of people that were really interested in cooking. I kept hearing people talk about how hard it was to move out of temporary accommodation and Mm -hmm. hostels. I went into that job not really knowing anything and I kept thinking everyone was wrong because you think this can't be the way. There's no way this is the system. Like 
you have to you have to work under 16 hours to be able to afford your hostel so you've got hundreds of people thousands of people in london who can't work that in the way they want to mm-hmm. because if they work their benefits are cut they can't afford it you end up getting evicted from homeless hostels like the whole thing is is just Rigged. ludicrous yeah so i kept thinking oh no it can't be like this it can't be like that and then did my research and realized of course everyone who was living through it was right yeah. i was completely wrong and then i thought okay what I can do is bring these two bits together and make something happen. Mm-hmm. So, like, I'm not a chef, but I could host an event. I can get people in a room. I can test doing sort of can we cook for people in a way as a way of saving money mm-hmm. um, for deposits. Is that possible? And I think that was that was the bit I realised I was good at, um, which sort of led to it now being a social enterprise. We'd love to show by doing that there's a different way. You know, the system isn't working. We can create whole new models that actually make sense Mm -hmm. and get people to where they want to be. You know, universal credit is a thing. That doesn't mean that we can't think differently about how that interacts with other parts of life. We also have Tom Slatter, Head of Insights and Impact at The Brokerage, a social mobility charity that works with both young people and employers to drive positive change in the workplace. Thank you so much for joining us. So the brokerage is about offering young people equal access to opportunities. So what does that sort of look like? Yeah, we work with young people, 16 to 25. Not all young people, we're a social mobility charity. So the idea is to work with working class young people who are interested in the particular kind of jobs that we know about, which is professional jobs in in the city. So banking and finance is where we started and then that's evolved a little bit. Uh, you come to us if you're a working class young person, 16 to 25, who's interested in getting into banking or law or insurance, mm-hmm. city jobs. Because uh, those kind of jobs have historically been a bit of a closed shop, mm-hmm. uh, particularly if you're from a uh, working class background, if you're from an ethnic minority. We've got a pretty sort of well-established brand. Young people very often learn of us via teachers or college staff. The young people do these sort of the initial training, learning, developing my skills bits, and then be on our books um, for a few years right. as they're at uni, you know, mm-hmm. thinking about the internships and jobs they can find via us and talking to them about their experiences of do- having done these internships and then saying, look, these companies are lovely, they're great. There's things they don't get and we could tell them. So we've been doing a lot of that in various ways. Um, my favourite example, I think, is our reverse mentoring programme. So that's uh, the young leaders uh, as mentors for... Uh, senior people are companies. This. I love this idea. Um, so you will get, um, I'm going to reach for stereotypes, sorry. You'll get uh, the mentee being a uh, middle aged white guy uh, like me, but with a more conservative haircut, um, uh, being mentored by <laughs> you know, the young black woman or, or, mm-hmm. or, or um, uh, someone like that. Um, not because she knows about his business. But she does know about the kind of people that he really liked to hire. Right. He does. She does know about the kind of generational stuff that he doesn't get. I don't really get my young staff. I don't really get how to talk, how to communicate, mm-hmm. what are their priorities. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and he's got someone who he can ask those questions. Right. Um, and without f- embarrassment. Without embarrassment. Well, yeah. I'm sure there is a bit of embarrassment. <laughs> we without support, we train then. without judgment, definitely. <laughs> yeah, okay. We support, we train on both sides. Um, businesses feel they need to respond to things like Black Lives Matter, you know, but how do we do that in a way that's meaningful uh, and authentic? Or um, so much of our working culture, as it often is in the city, mm-hmm. is based around going down to the pub, 
Yeah. That does not suit anyone, everyone. How do I, what do we do? How yeah. do we work this? How do we work this out? And how do we make this um, uh, inclusive? So things like that or things like um, doing uh, focus groups with HR people bringing like their job adverts and careers sites to our young people and saying, this work, would you apply for a job here? And them saying, well, why is there a picture of a horse? Oh, because we do equine insurance. Okay, but I mean, <laughs> horse riding? What's that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, there's clear class uh, uh, connotations yes. there. There's clear, that's what posh people do, right? Yeah. And I'm not sure actually it is, but that's the image. You know, so having that conversation um, and the young people being able to shape what we're doing, mm-hmm. um, but far more importantly, shape how our partner companies are thinking and what they're doing. The system must not work like this. And then the people actually living in it saying, yes, it does. Um, and finding ways to make sure that, that conversations happens and make sure that we listen mm-hmm. and, and put them at the heart of what we're doing. So there we have the DIFFS host, Rihanna, chatting to Meg from the homelessness charity Fat Macy's and Tom from the social mobility charity The Brokerage, who are both working to help people from under-resourced backgrounds thrive in society. Absolutely. And what I love about this conversation with Meg and Tom is that it is, it's really fresh, really engaging. They both have such passion about making their work incredibly meaningful, providing genuine impact and taking a very authentic approach to their work as well. I think both there were talking a lot about how important it is that they are centering the people that they are looking to support in everything that they do and being so willing to be led by those with lived experiences and being very ready to admit it when they get things wrong themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And They also both had some interesting perspectives on some of the quirks of the sector. So here's Meg talking about the challenges of funding and measuring impact. You hear wraparound support, you hear holistic programmes being talked about more, Mm. which is great. I think it just costs a hell of a lot. Right. And funders want to fund projects, don't they? They want to fund an exciting project that they can like put a stamp on and say, this is what we did. And our work is, you know, it's so much messier and, and more lifelike because you can't say, okay, well, well, this bit, this bit of this support was allocated to that program, but then we did all these other bits because they asked. And then we did this bit and that bit connects to that program. But on the whole, it's just life, isn't it? Yeah. And, and that's the bit I think that's harder. It's harder to measure. Impact measurement's a nightmare. What, you kind of, what are the outcomes of what you did compared to, you know, what do you claim, what do you not claim in terms right, okay. of what you're doing? Yeah. Whereas I think the project part is easier because you say, we did this project, mm-hmm. this happened, full stop. And often with us at the brokerage, the big outcome is years after the programme. It's to begin with, do they get into a kind of career that they probably wouldn't have accessed without our help? But then we're just starting to think about, okay, getting them in is good, but all the evidence is that there's a big challenge about getting people to stay. So that's the next thing that we're thinking about at the moment. How do you help people sustain that career and, you know, turn it into a, a real career rather than just a couple of years before you realise, oh, actually, I don't want me here. I mm. have somewhere else. Yeah, I think what's interesting in charity work is that we have the people, your beneficiaries become somehow different to like how the rest of us interact in our normal lives. You know, like I never, no one ever asks me what was the outcome or the impact of you getting that job or you doing that degree yeah, or you doing whatever it is. Yeah. Because 
I'm not seen as a beneficiary to anything. Yeah. So I can just crack on and no one does any of that, like mm-hmm. impact measurement outcome frameworks. But in the charity world, you know, your beneficiaries are always having to be measured or like, oh, are you succeeding? And as you say, sometimes the success comes six, seven years later and the spark was maybe something that you did in your charity mm-hmm. or the work that you did. Or it's a combination, like we work with partners all the time and like we do a bit and someone else does a bit. Mm-hmm. And as charities, I think, are always expected for it to be quite contained and, you know, um, measured. But I think yeah. that's really hard. I never really thought about it in that way. Messy and lifelike. I love that turn of phrase. And I think it sounds like almost a perfect encapsulation of the sector's work all the while, of course, waiting for those meaningful and long term outcomes. And I thought Meg's point about beneficiaries being divorced from real life is probably something that I'm sure a lot of our listeners would empathize with and I'm sure that's a challenge of delivering work in a really well-rounded way that Mm. a lot of people are always trying to navigate yeah and on that note then I think we would like to share now a final observation from Meg and Tom around how charities treat their service users or their beneficiaries and what they would change if they could if I could change one thing it would be a mindset uh, amongst policymakers but also to be mildly controversial um, with people who work in charity as well not everyone but some mm-hmm. um, which is uh, to stop locating the problem in the beneficiary we'll talk to potential funders and it'll all be like I said earlier helping out the, the poor young people because there's something the implication is there's something wrong with them and you'll get that language that we're quite used to, you know, uh, talking about them as being disadvantaged or um, uh, other words that have quite negative connotations. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying people don't need help because, of course, they do. But the kind of help that we think our young people need isn't it's the same as any other young person. Everyone yeah. needs careers education. Yeah, yeah. It's just that some people get it and some people don't. Mm-hmm. Um, so stop thinking there's a problem with that person. I'm going to solve it and help them. And start thinking a problem's been put in front of that person. Mm. and we can remove that we can remove that barrier which means accepting that actually if we all put a mind to it we can change the world we don't have to put up with how systems are set up mm-hmm. um, and that's an alien way of thinking for some people but i think there's there maybe needs to be a shift of connecting the dots so i think i would love people to look at all of these issues from the perspective of the person rather than the perspective of the label. So people look at everything as a homelessness problem. So it's homelessness and housing, and that and that's the issue. But it's not. It's education, it's poverty, it's levels of education, it's the way the benefit system works, mm-hmm. it's the NHS, it's housing, it's mental health. You know, it's all of it combined. It's yeah. not it's not just a one a one thing issue. And I think when people look at things from that perspective, it doesn't make any sense because if someone said to me like, oh, talk to me about all of the bits of your life, it doesn't just start and end with my house. Like the house is great and I love living where I live um, and it gives me the stability and security and that's so, so important. But I think we box things a little bit too much. And I think if instead you could shift it to be like, okay, there is a huge number of people in the UK who aren't reaching their potential, which I'm sure is a lot of the work that you're doing. How can we do that? But looking at it from the person rather than looking at, at it from, like, the issue. Mm-hmm. I think you, you'd end up with very different solutions um, and very different models and ways of working. Like, universal credit only works 
really if you're if you can afford the life that you live already lots of people can't because things are really difficult yeah. and so you know th there's all these sorts of issues that I think work on paper maybe I mean I don't work in policy I've never worked in policy but I can imagine you've sort of written it down it looks great but no one's then gone and spoken to someone living in a temporary accommodation hostel and gone what's the experience for you getting mm -hmm. this benefit and mm -hmm. how does that change how you can do this and how does that mean you can apply for jobs and what does that how does that affect your mental health mm -hmm. and your sense of purpose like that's all for me much more important than trying to look at things in sort of isolation because life doesn't work like that. That was Rihanna Dillon talking to Meg from Fat Macy's and Tom from the brokerage and lots of ideas there about alternative ways of dealing with social problems. I thought that last point by Meg about homelessness and looking at the person and the system that they are in. I mean, what I find interesting is that the only thing that people often have in common who are experiencing homelessness is the fact that they're homeless that mm -hmm. they don't have a home at that particular moment in time the reasons for reaching that point might be the same but also might be completely different and you need to address the problem from that individual perspective absolutely couldn't agree more and speaking of those alternative ways to deal with societal problems we also had time for a chat with christian foley who is a poet, and he is a champion of the alternative provision system for children who have been excluded from mainstream education. And Christian's work is all about encouraging those young people to re-engage with education and learning through the power of hip-hop. Being excluded from school is not the beginning of a, of a journey. It's... it's the end point of an educational journey that has been marked by a distrust of authority, uh, an unstable home life, and a, a general feeling of stress, anxiety, and insecurity in, in everyday existence. And that is naturally going to, to bleed into behavior. And so these children arrive at a referral unit or a provision already not willing to engage. And the first group I ever worked with, actually, there was, there was eight, eight young men age 16, and my job was obviously to work with them on, on poetry. But because these are kind of underfund, underfunded institutions, you, you double up with jobs. So I was uh, working with poetry, but also PE. And so I had to deliver their PE curriculum and teach them poetry. And the kids said to me on the first day, like, look, there's two things we're not going to do. We're not going to swim in PE. We're never going to do that. And we're not going to write. So I said, okay, our curriculum this term you're going to be writing in the morning and we're going to be swimming in the afternoon. And my job was uh, to teach them how to swim in, in two ways, really, because swimming and poetry, when I started teaching this, I found were very comparable because the first time you put a blank page in front of someone, it's overwhelming. It feels like they're going to drown in it, this whole expanse of scary depth. And if you don't know how to read and write or you haven't done that much, that is a, a scary situation. So that's what it was like when we put this blank page in front of them. Same thing with the swimming pool. The first day, uh, a boy punched a lifeguard. We got banned from uh, that centre. But we try again. We go to a, a different centre and, and they dip their toes in the water and they realise that it's not as cold as they previously kind of fathomed. And once they dip their toes in, then they can start to wade in the water and eventually they become acclimatised. And it's not as cold and it's not as scary. And gradually and gradually and gradually these boys learn to swim and at the end of the year they were swimming lengths and the same thing happened with poetry gradually and gradually and gradually 
they learned to swim, they learned to write, and at the end of the year, they published a, a book of poems. And hip-hop-based education runs on that ethos. It's very influenced by the theoretical school of what we call critical pedagogy. So critical pedagogy is all about teaching children to think critically about the world around them. And because society is unjust, if we're just conditioning children to participate in an unjust society, we're not doing our job as educators. If we're just, you know, putting them through the factory line of school and saying, when you come out, you're going to you get a job. We haven't really educated. We, we've taught the memorization and reproduction of facts and children have been passive recipients in that process. What hip hop based education tries to establish is, is dialogue between the educator and the educated. And this is this is progressive education. It faces a lot of opposition and sometimes it isn't always realistic. What it does is it's culturally relevant. So children go home and they're listening to rap and children who, who you are told on paper are, are not literate, who don't write essays, they write reams and thousands and thousands of words on their phone and they're writing raps. These are very literate children. It's just that the, the, the rigid definition of literacy hasn't been expanded to um, include hip hop, uh, and it should be. So it's about tapping into that. So I've often found kids who have been unwilling to engage in more conventional lessons, the moment we put that rap beat on, stand up, let's do a cypher, let's do a freestyle. And you're, you're hitting all these things at once. You're hitting oracy, you're hitting literacy, this kind of, uh, the ability to listen. And it's very child-centered. So cool. I mean, he's exceptional. I could listen to him speaking all day. Absolutely. And so that, again, was Christian Foley speaking about his work in pupil referral units and the alternative provision system. And again, I think one thing which is the, constant touchstone across all of these conversations despite people working in different cause areas is that centering of the people they work with mm. at the heart of everything that they do and making sure that they are shaping their work around the wants and the needs of those people that they support. But still laying down the authority there that it was interesting that they specifically said that they didn't want to do writing and they didn't want to do swimming so that was the first ground rule mm. that he laid was that those are the two things that we are going to do absolutely and the final conversation that we're going to share with you today in this initial pilot was between two people who are both working in very different ways to combat loneliness and isolation and uh, creating strong communities in that process so for this we are going to now hand back to the host of the diff rihanna dylan to introduce them Alex Smith is a senior advisor at the Obama Foundation, a not-for-profit that helps people around the world turn hope into action. And until recently, he was the chief executive of The Cares Family, a charity that helps people find connection and community in a disconnected age. I know while you were, I mean, the reason for you starting The Cares Family was a chance encounter with an 84-year-old called Fred. Can you tell us about the origin stories for you working in the charity sector? I had returned from the US where I was volunteering on the campaign in 2007 and 2008, and I felt that politics was the best way to change the world and mm -hmm. change my community. So I stood for the local council in the area that I grew up in, in North London. Mm -hmm. And on election day, I was knocking on doors, trying to get people to come out and vote for me. And behind one of the doors, I met Fred, as you say, 84-year-old man who lived three streets away from me. And he said he'd love to come out and vote. He'd never missed an election in his whole life. Um, 
but he wouldn't be able to that day because he hadn't been out of his house for three months. He hadn't spoken to anyone for three months apart from his carer who brought him his breakfast in the morning and his dinner at night. Um, so not today. Um, but there was a wheelchair behind Fred. And so cheekily, I suggested if he was comfortable too, I would escort him down the road um, so that he could perform that democratic right that he'd always believed in. Mm -hmm. And while we were out, he became animated. He started to speak to people, wave to neighbours he hadn't seen for three months. And as I dropped him back home, he said that was wonderful, particularly to have an interaction with a younger person. I was younger back then. I was about 26, 27. <laughs> um, and, but he said that... Um, he felt he'd lost his dignity because he hadn't been out of his house for mm -hmm. three months and his hair had become long and greasy. So he desperately wanted a haircut. Yeah. So the next day, having lost my election, I returned to Fred's home again, surprisingly, and knocked on the door and said, Fred, it's time for that haircut. Mm -hmm. And while he sat in the barber's chair, he told me his life story. We realised we had lots in common. We both loved Sinatra and the Rat Pack. Um, and he'd set up and run the shop that was my favourite place growing up in Camden Town when I was a kid. So we had that thing in mm -hmm. common. Fred and I became friends. Um, I thought there was something in that, that in this kind of globalising, gentrifying, digitising age, the generations are separated. Both are lonely, not just older people like Fred, but younger people like me. Yeah. I had my head on my phone and computer screens the whole time. So I created North London Cares to bring older and younger people together um, through one-to-one -one friendships like mine and Fred's, but also through group experiences. So Desert Island Disc Nights, where people share their favourite records, history nights, book clubs. Um, and that charity, very small at the time, grew over the next 12 years into the Cares family with branches in North London, South London, East London, Manchester and Liverpool. And then we had national programmes that were giving our work away as well. Um, and the th one of the things that I'm proudest of is that we used the opportunity of those stories, stories like mine and Fred's and 30,000 others of people who were part of those charities mm. to influence government and how it thought about loneliness. Mm. And we were part of lobbying for and shaping the world's first ever government level loneliness strategy, wow. which was launched with us by the Prime Minister at the time. Also with us is Ben Sweet, manager at Love Squared, a Bristol-based charity that provides special educational needs and mental health support to children and young people. We recently changed our name to Love Squared because what we want to do is talk about love in the children's sector because it's not spoken about. I used mm. to be a teacher and you wouldn't say, oh, I love teaching. I love the kids in my class. I love teaching them. You just wouldn't say it to another professional right? because all the connotations of that. Mm -hmm. And everyone who works with children and young people they do it out of love. They don't do it for the money. They don't do it for the fame. Yeah, they yeah. do it because they want to make a difference. They they love seeing the progress. Mm -hmm. If you don't realise that, that it is about love mm -hmm. and it's about building those relationships, then you're never going to make a difference in those mm. children's lives. Lots of our young people are really keen to learn mm -hmm. and they really want to, to get on board and move forward with their life. And mm. the system that they've been in doesn't help them do that mainstream school is very structured and you either you follow the route or and if you can't follow that route then the school will say that they can't meet your need and then before that long before that that child would have stopped attending and then they will blame themselves for their their school life not going well mm. and they will think they're stupid and they will think they will never match anything but they really want to learn and then eventually because it's a long time it's a long process to get statutory funding for a young person who's not in mainstream school Eventually, if, if we start working with them, we will just try and find what they want to do. And they they really want to engage with us 
we have children who have really high levels of OCD mm-hmm. who really want to come down and do their work and, and talk to their practitioner and have mentoring and have tuition with us. But their routines and their rituals mean they're stuck in the bathroom and they could be stuck in there for four hours. And so they will miss that time they, that we've put aside for them. And then it's convincing local authorities that that child, even though they haven't attended sessions in a while, they really want it and, yeah. and it needs to be held for them. And we need to be still there going every week. And our practitioner goes every week and we'll see if they are ready to do that session. Mm-hmm. And if not, she'll leave a note. She'll write them a message. Mm-hmm. She will leave some work for them to do or she'll leave a book for him to read. Mm. Something to make him know that she still cares mm. and that her that she's not angry. She's not feeling like her time is wasted. And then it's us going back to the local party and saying, this is a precious thing for that young person. Without it, they have nothing. Mm. So you need to keep, you need to trust us and trust in the process that we have that that young person will engage and wants it. I think for me, listening to Alex and Ben's conversation particularly really hit home for me the intensity of what it is to actually work in charity. Mm. And particularly whenever. Ben speaks, I find myself reflecting on the enormous wells of support and resilience that so many people in the sector are and and the support that they provide every day. And there is a different passage, which we're not listening to today, in which we were talking about the nature of the job and Ben's reflection that almost every day it doesn't feel like life-changing work a lot of the time in the grand scheme of things. But for the young people that he supports, every step they take, actually it is life-changing for that person. It is life-changing for that family. And I think when whenever we're reporting on the sector, it's so easy to lose that. So it was a very privileged thing to be able to sit in on those conversations and then on the other hand you have someone like Alex who starts off running a desert island disc night which incidentally I think sounds like an amazing way to spend an evening and then you go from that to influencing the government's national loneliness strategy Mm. so the achievements of so many people working in this sector they really are quite phenomenal they certainly are So we are almost finished with our The Diff preview. Mm. Um, But finally, just wanted to play a really interesting perspective that Alex had on the framing of people and community that form the CARES family. Our philosophy was always that we are not a service. Mm -hmm. The CARES family is not a service, proudly so. It's a community. It's Mm -hmm. an authentic, bottom-up, organic community. And it's a bit messy. And, you know, sometimes there are difficult things involved with that as well. Disagreements or whatever it might be. And the language that we used felt completely organic for me as the founder of the organization, having only previously really worked in I worked in politics for a time before, but before that I was in a pub and a record shop and right, a school okay. and yeah. you know, places of authentic community. Mm-hmm. Um so we developed this language which was about neighbors coming together, not a volunteer and a beneficiary not a client Mm -hmm. who was receiving a service from somebody who was befriending them, to use the word befriending, Um, but neighbours who, you know, you can't be a neighbour unless it implies a relationship with somebody around you. Mm -hmm. Relationships obviously have an extraordinary power to do harm in people's lives, Mm -hmm. but they also have an extraordinary power to heal 
so you've both kind of worked um, directly with people over the years, but now, Alex, now that you're kind of working at the Obama Foundation, we might have this idea of it being this enormous kind of sprawling company. And how do you kind of ensure that the work that you're doing day to day is, you know, always resonant with the reason that you started in the first place? A big part of my job is understanding that the the most impactful change often happens in the space between grassroots activism and campaigning and civil society change and more top-down policy change and systemic change. And that's kind of the space that the Obama Foundation operates in, mm-hmm. um, helping grassroots leaders to realise their capacity and to realise that telling a personal story can actually inspire people. And once you can inspire people and build a movement, mm. then you can shift the dial when it comes to policy change and systemic change and cultural change. So it's quite easy, actually, to remain connected to the kind of authentic grassroots leaders because yeah. I'm speaking to them every day, as yeah. well as speaking to people at the Obama Foundation in the US and other supporters across Europe and partners who might be involved um, because their stories are incredibly inspiring. Right? Mm-hmm. And these are people who have seen a problem in their own community not waited for big government or big business mm-hmm. or big charities for that matter to do something about it, but have taken the agency of belonging in a community and the relationships that they have with their neighbours to say, we have some power here too and we're going to start to make a difference. Mm. We all think we're very different sometimes on this planet and media environment and social media tells us that we're different. Yeah. But the reality is that we all live strikingly similar stories of love and loss and hope and heartbreak mm-hmm. and mischief and misadventure. Uh, and we all want a better future for the next generation. Yeah. So um, the Obama Foundation tries to tap into those hopes, I think, to inspire people to action to create that better future. Well, we hope that you enjoyed that sneak preview of the diff. And I know we found it incredibly hard to just take a few tiny snippets of what was some really long, extensive and in-depth conversations. Hopefully we'll have a platform to provide much more of those in the future. But we are really excited about this project and do please stay tuned for more information about our official pilot release, which will be coming soon. There is also such an exciting young team working on the diff, and I'm really hopeful that you're going to be hearing much more from them in the future. But for now, I think it's very important that we also thank Rihanna Dillon, Inga Marsden, Till Owen, GD Iguakun, Babajide Osakoya, and Nav Pal for bringing this new project to life. And we'd love to know what you made of it. If you'd like to get in touch and give us your thoughts on this slightly different new mm. <laughs> product, you can do so via the short survey, which is open as ever. The link to get to that is in the show notes. Next week, Rory and I will be returning to our usual format and be hearing from Food Cycle about their tactics to attract more volunteers and foster a sense of community. Join us for that. <laughs>